Thanks for joining us for the 2018 7th Annual Stroke Conference, The Pulse of Stroke Rehabilitation. This conference is sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. In this podcast lecture, Karen Nolan presented Robotic Exoskeleton Technology for Gait Rehabilitation Post-Stroke. Dr. Karen Nolan is a senior research scientist at Kessler Foundation. This presentation was recorded on Thursday, November 1st, 2018 at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, Saddlebrook Campus, 300 Market Street, Saddlebrook, New Jersey. For more information about Kessler Foundation Research or Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, click on the links within the description of this podcast. Let's listen in. I'm here today to talk to you about robotic exoskeleton technology for stroke. And um, you guys are going to get a little bit of a sneak peek on some of the technology that's currently available that is being implemented, is being done for clinical trials. Um, and I'm going to show you some videos. So I usually try to give you a little bit more information when I talk about exoskeletons and kind of give you the pros, the cons, the reasons why we would use them. But today I'm going to give you a little bit of a sneak peek on some of the technology that we're testing, some of the technology that's available, and kind of give you an idea of what's the state of the science in exoskeleton technology. Um, so just some quick disclosures. I have funding through uh, DOD, NIH, uh, NIDLR, and the New Jersey Commission on Brain Injury Research. And I say this every time I talk, but it's really important. All the patients that are gonna be presented today, you're gonna to see their face. And the reason for that is because I'm showing you technology. And I think it's really important for you to see how a patient interacts with technology to get a really good idea of how they like it, how they're using it, how it affects their walking. And some of that is on their face. And so anybody that I'm showing today has signed a media consent to be able to be shown in presentations like this. And you'll see their faces. Sometimes they're happy, sometimes they're concerned, just like your patients are when you give them new modalities and technologies. And I think that's part of whether or not the technology is being adopted by the patient. So just some really brief learning objectives. The idea for this is to go over the utility of a robotic exoskeleton. What is it? Why are we using it? What's it for? What is the intent of using an exoskeleton in stroke rehabilitation? To discuss some initial clinical and research results, so not too heavy on graphs and data and stats, but I think it's important in evidence-based medicine to back up the information that we're doing. A lot of these different pieces of technology are being implemented, and the data is small. And so we need to keep building data and building evidence for why these things should be implemented. And so I'm going to go over some clinical research, as well as some initial, um, more quantitative research from a biomechanics lab. and then. That's going to build to the efficacy of a robotic exoskeleton. Why should we be implementing these? How can we implement them into clinical practice? And why is that a good idea? Or why is it not a good idea? So there's a lot of technology involved in today's rehabilitation process. And some of it is useful for your patient. And some of it maybe is not the best option. So you're probably hearing all about stroke. You're very familiar. It's a very large problem. 16.9 um, million strokes worldwide. And the hemiplegia part is what I'm focusing on, right? So 50% have hemiplegia. So the goal is to gait retrain or to regain mobility in the rehabilitation setting. And if half of your pop, if, if half of the people who are experiencing a stroke are having weakness on one side, so right away when you talk about an exoskeleton, you have to consider that one side is functioning very different than another side, which is commonplace in rehabilitation, but not necessarily commonplace for engineers building robots. So it's really important when you take a piece of technology that you're going to apply to the entire system to make sure that one side versus the other side can be controlled differently. 
The other thing is to talk about the seven million stroke survivors. A lot of times we talk about the effect of stroke and we unfortunately talk about the statistics, but the impact of it are the survivors that are then left with residual mobility challenges, which is what we're trying to address or trying to help them recover. So what is an exoskeleton? So the idea of the exoskeletons we're using in stroke rehabilitation are to promote return of movement to a weak or paralyzed limb, to guide, resist, or assist. So the idea is not to give them a ride. The idea is to stress movement, to give them repetitive practice, repeated movement practice, guiding the movement in the correct plane, resisting when necessary for strength training, and assisting when that weak limb can't get the movement all the way through. So these are really key elements because a lot of people are resistant to this technology because they think it's like a Segway. You put them on it and they go for a ride. And some of the robotic exoskeletons out there are very much moving the patient through a re repetitive movement and may not be resisting, assisting, or guiding. And so those are really critical elements for putting someone in this if they're going to get something out of this process. Repeated practice, but also repeated practice in the correct plane of movement. So if you're walking, and we often have circumduction, right, after stroke, we want to keep them in the sagittal plane, right? So we're trying to drive through that leg and forward, and fo make forward progress in the sagittal plane as they drive their knee through rather than that circumduction or rather than a hip hike in order to prevent that foot from hitting the ground. So what we're trying to do is drive a range of motion or drive a movement that's a healthy pattern. So at Kessler Foundation, which is where I work um, and do most of this research in conjunction with Kessler Institute, we have some exoskeletons that we apply not only in the inpatient process but in the outpatient process for patients post-stroke. And the key to this is in stroke rehabilitation and all the work that I'm doing, we're using a robotic exoskeleton as a gait training device. So there's a lot of robots out there, there are a lot of populations out there, and there's a lot of populations that the rehabilitation world services. But for stroke rehabilitation, for what I'm doing, we're using these devices for gait retraining. And this is critical to understand because everything else we're going to go through, everything else we're going to talk about is in the context of gait retraining, relearning the ability to walk. And another critical component to that is under the guidance of a physical therapist. So the idea is not to implement robots to replace clinicians. The goal is to make this an extension of a clinician's hands. So rehabilitation is a very hands-on process. And so the idea is to make this a natural extension of a clinician's hands so that they can continue to guide the patient as they normally would, maybe for more steps, increasing dosing, maybe for further, further distance, increased range of motion, so that they can concentrate on cueing and safety rather than so as much of making sure the patient stays upright. So again, the goals are intensive step dosage to relearn or train step patterns and weight shifts. And so most clinicians are very familiar with the fact that we have to shift weight, right? We have to offload a limb, we have to onload a limb. These are very common things, but you have to have a robot that can then replicate the gait process. So what we need to do is work with the engineers to have them better understand the gait process so they can implement these robots the way that you want to have it as an extension of your hands. Biofeedback. So oftentimes in therapy, the, the clinicians are constantly talking to the patients. You're constantly cueing them. You're giving them information. You're cueing them every time they take a step, shift your weight, take a step, drive your knee through, load your foot, land with your heel, all of these different comments that you're making. You can use the robot in a very similar way with chirps and beeps to help them reach, reach targets. So a lot of these devices, as you shift to the lateral side, will make a, a chirp or a beep or a sound to let you know you've hit a target or gone too far. 
So you're still being guided by a therapist to make sure you stay upright, safe, and balanced, but you can have the robot make sounds to help with cueing. You can do the same thing when you're supposed to take a step, or it can tell you when you've not taken a step quickly enough. So biofeedback, so you can have noises that can help you with cueing throughout the rehabilitation process during walking. And again, symmetry. So we go back to hemiplegia and that one-sided weakness, and it's really important that we start to try to drive symmetry. Are we trying to drive symmetry in the absence of a healthy pattern? No, but symmetry is definitely a step in the right direction because the asymmetrical steps post-stroke are part of the problem with the healthy walking patterns, part of the reason that we're not getting proper propulsion and part of the reason why they walk very slow and in, a not, and in an unbalanced fashion. So what we're trying to do is drive some of that symmetry towards a healthier walking pattern. So these are some of the exoskeletons that are currently either on the market, in, in concept, being tested or being developed. So this is industry sponsored, this is university sponsored, this is privately funded, and these are different exoskeletons. And what you're gonna notice by looking at this picture of little walking friends here is they have different types of control. So some of them have support for the upper, upper extremity, some of them go all the way down through the foot in a foot plate, some of them are much more heavy. Like if you look at the Rex, that's a much more stable robot. The point of that robot is really for more stable standing actions. So say standing in front of a stove and the robot can self-balance. And so each of these has a different function and have a slightly different goal or purpose and should be applied to a slightly different population or may or may not be appropriate for a population or may be appropriate early on and may not be appropriate as patients recover. So the idea is to understand what they each bring to the table, again, to be an extension of your rehabilitation process, to decide if it's an appropriate thing to apply at that stage of rehabilitation. So it's a really good point. So this is a new field, right? It's, a, it's been going on for a while, but it's a new field in implementation into the clinical program. So we don't have enough small ones for pediatrics, and we are very limited on how large they can go. And currently, that's an engineering problem for two reasons. The materials have to be able to withstand the weight of a larger person so that the, the, the duration or the breakage right, has, of the device as it gets larger or taller even the materials have to be able to, to withstand that. And typically, the manufacturers are making this for the average person, as is everything starts. What? The device, as long as the device can grow around the person, it shouldn't get heavier, but that's another potential possibility that it gets heavier. So right now, the we have large limitations in weight of the patient that can go in the device and height and for pediatrics, we can't only go so small. So right now, there are limitations in how these devices can grow. So the devices we're currently using, the heaviest max weight that you can in pounds is 250 pounds for the one device we have. It's 220 pounds for another device that we have. And that's not as big, weight isn't as big of a problem with pediatrics, but it's definitely a hip issue. So the device that can go up to 250 pounds, there's a hip width limitation. So the anthropometrics of these have not been perfected necessarily for all body shapes, sizes, and weights. And definitely for pediatrics, it's also a problem. We've been applying these in, in children, and we're definitely having um, them not be able to shrink down small enough yet. I'm just curious what materials they 
So they're all different, and I'm going to go through some of the exoskeletons. So some of them have you know, metal supports. There's fabric-based supports. Um, there's different motors. Um, usually when the, the way, where it affixes to the skin is a soft and padded kind of device, usually made of something um, neoprene or something padded that can absorb um, non-friction surfaces. Um, most of the stuff, most of the affixations to the skin are, are protected and cushioned, um, and usually it's attached through Velcro and a soft fabric, and then the rigid exoskeletons going on the outside. And what's the rigid usually? Um, typically it's, it's some sort of a metal, lightweight metal, um, and or hard plastics. Like carbon? Or? Uh, they're all different, yeah, all different types of materials. So they're all different. And I promise I will get to all of those. Because it's sort of like holding up a pen, and you each hold a pen, and you all say to me, what is this made out of? Is, how does this pen work? How does this pen? It's technology, right? And so each engineer is going to come up with a reason why the mechanical part properties are different or the software properties are different. And I'm going to go through some of that. But you guys are hitting on the most important thing, which is what are the mechanical properties of the device? What are the software properties of the device? How do they interact? And then how can they be applied to a patient? And that's actually the key component of each different device and how you should really evaluate it. So you guys have already hit on that. So great job. Um, really quickly, because I know you're very interested in getting to the details of the device, I just wanted to let you have an, give you an idea. This was in 2016, so this is a little bit of an old slide at this point. But the idea is to show the buzz worldwide of exoskeletons and how excited everyone is about inventing new exoskeletons, imp implementing new exoskeletons, and really adopting the technology, but also really investigating it. So this was in 2016. It was called the Subathlon. And what they did is they basically had an obstacle course race for these different devices. And while to rehabilitation professionals this sounds like a competition, and it, it was, and there was a winner, um, the idea is nice that they're trying to make these devices walk over an obstacle course. So they're not considering just a flat linoleum floor. And if you look at most of the devices that have come out in rehabilitation, it's always to be walked over a flat linoleum floor. No curbs, no ramps, no steps, no uneven surfaces, all of the different things that people are going to encounter in the community. So I think it's really important that while this was a competition really for industry and for the professionals making the devices, I think the way that it's being applied is really novel because they're considering all the different surfaces and all the different challenges that are going to be encountered in the community. So I think it's nice, especially early on, this was a few years ago, that this is even being considered. Because that hasn't necessarily been considered in the past of how is this going to translate into the environment. So again, there was a winner, um, and they awarded a, a gold, silver, and bronze medal. The winner for this that round happened to have been Rewalk. Um, what does that mean? It just meant that that particular device that was tested at that time was, had done the best going over the obstacles. Um, a lot of this had to do with the population that was being tested at the time. And for this particular um, event, they were testing individuals post-spinal cord injury, and there were certain tasks that had to be made. So, this is always a critical piece of information. How does that translate to stroke? They are very different populations and they have different needs in the community and they're gonna need different assistance levels. So it's always important to consider that if we're talking about stroke rehabilitation, this was an event, it would be nice if they put patients post-stroke in this kind of an event and saw how the devices fared. 
So you guys are probably very interested in what are the barriers to implement. I always go through this because it's definitely a critical step to adopting this technology. Um, time to train clinical staff, cost of the devices, and the cost to train clinical staff. So it doesn't only cost to buy it, it costs to maintain it, it costs time as well as costs money to train and bring staff in to be trained. Um, there's uncertainty about the efficacy. There isn't enough evidence out there currently to, to really indicate evidence-based efficacy for these devices to be implemented. And I think it's important to say that out loud because it's my job to work with professionals and scientists to get this information out, to find out what the difference is between this and standard of care, and to get the evidence out so that you can make decisions. And it's not making a decision, this is good, this is bad. It's this might be good for my patient based on my rehabilitation goals today. This might work for my patient down the line based on my rehabilitation goals tomorrow. And this is important to consider because these are capital purchases typically, and to implement them have to have a large reason. And you need to think about it not, wouldn't, you wouldn't buy a treadmill for everyone in the hospital, right? You would buy a bed to make sure everyone has somewhere to sleep in the hospital. So you have to consider these a little bit more like a device that's gonna be used multiple times but not a single use and not necessarily one-to-one -one all day long that everyone needs to have one. And so it really takes thinking about it in a unique way, more like you would a larger device that's used multiple times in multiple sessions. Again, generic skepticism. It has to be plugged in. There's batteries that have to be changed out. And there are a lot of things in rehabilitation that don't need to be plugged in and are very effective. And so Immediately when you have to plug something in or it's on a cart and you have to translate it somewhere else and you have to change out batteries and there's motors and it's heavy and you have to wheel it in from a secret room, that's intimidating not only to the patient, to the clinicians, to the attendings, only because it's, it's unfamiliar. You don't know what it's going to do. You don't know how it's going to affect the patient. So that's why part of this kind of a talk is important to get the word out about what's available, what's being done, what's being adopted, what works, what's starting to look like it might work. And again, the skilled clinician versus technology. And so again, I'm always trying to talk about this as an extension of a skilled clinician, not a replacement of a skilled clinician. And that's something that's really important in my job because the engineers make these devices and they want them implemented. And it's really important to translate that to the clinician as a supplement or a skill or a tool in your toolbox, not a replacement. Because the device does nothing unless it's in the hands of a skilled clinician. So most of you have been to Kessler West or seen this building. Um, Kessler Foundation has two campuses, and we implement this technology typically at the West Orange campus um, where Kessler Institute for Re Rehabilitation is located. We are actually located in their building. Um, and we also have an exoskeleton here at Saddlebrook that we're implementing. Um, at this point, we don't have one at Chester, but we're working on that. And all of these exoskeletons are being used for stroke rehabilitation, for gait retraining in the inpatient process, and we're using it now starting in the outpatient process for more chronic stroke survivors. Um, we're also implementing it in pediatrics. So we're working with Children's Specialized Hospital and we have an exoskeleton down in their New Brunswick campus to use for inpatient pediatric patients. There are a lot of limitations because of the size restrictions of going small enough for kids. Um, and as all of you know, either, either in your personal life or professional life, just shrinking it for a child doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work appropriately. So we're still working on getting something that's appropriate for pediatrics. So what did we do? We needed to initiate training. So about four or five years ago, we initiated initial training for the clinicians to learn how to select the appropriate patient, learning skills to manipulate the device, and how to troubleshoot during utilization. So what did we essentially do? 
we started to implement this technology, but really we were training clinicians and trying to understand whether it was feasible. Could it be done in a clinical block of time? Could it be done easily with the tools that were available? Could it be compact and in a, in a space that could be wheeled in and wheeled out, moved from one unit to the other, moved from the patient's room to one gym to the other gym, making sure that this technology was able to move around? So you see we put this particular exoskeleton on a cart. And the reason it's nice is all the tools are right there. It's on a cart, it's streamlined, it fits through normal doorways. It can be moved from either patient room or patient gym. It can be, it can be put into an easy, easily into a closet. So these are all important considerations when you get this piece of technology. You'd be surprised because we use these Rubbermaid carts for our exoskeletons. There are other sites around the country who have these devices and they keep them in the cases that they come in, which is about the length of this table and it locks and sits long ways. So it's very logical to put it on something that's easily used and easily moved, but that's not necessarily the case for all these sites. And so when you see a site that has a device like this, one of the first questions you can ask is, well, where is it? Is it easily accessible? Oh, it's in a closet in the back in a case, and you know we don't really get to it that often. Yet I'm sure when you take it out, it's, the batteries aren't charged. So these are all the, the, all the barriers to really implementing this technology. And so making it easily accessible, having staff that's trained, and having the batteries in a place where they're constantly being charged, these sound very logical, but this is not always the case. So what we tried to do at Kessler Institute here at Saddlebrook, as well as West Orange, is have robots easily accessible, have them in a place where they can be charged easily, and making sure that they can go from patient gym to patient gym and easily, be easily adjustable. So at this point, we've trained 23 physical therapists across both Kessler sites. And we also have the Children's Specialized Hospital. So we're basically in three inpatient rehabilitation hospitals using these robotic exoskeletons. And the device we've implemented is the ExoGT by Exobionics. I'm gonna go through a few different exoskeletons, but this is the device that we started with and you're gonna see some data moving forward. So this gets to your question. The mechanical and control properties are the first thing that we're gonna talk about. And the mechanical control properties go back to who are you implementing it for? So stroke rehabilitation. What are you using it for? Gait rehabilitation. Okay, so what do we need it to do? If you just look at what's an exoskeleton and you actually Google it, you're gonna hear a lot of information about bugs <laughs> and very little to do with rehabilitation, okay? So the word exoskeleton alone is really not gonna get you very far in a Google search. If you use a powered exoskeleton, you'll get this definition. And I actually found this really recently, and the reason I like it is because it's moving the field forward. When we first started this, we were talking about a very rigid device with motors at the hip and the knee. We've now evolved into soft suits, dermoskeletons, uh, pulley systems. We're not just using a simple rigid frame with motors, we now have different pulleys, we now have pneumatics, we have levers, hydraulics. Um, we're using different engineering principles to come up with the best solution. Lightweight, adaptable, and customizable to each patient. And so, again, the mechanical and control properties are essential in order to understand if you should implement it. So what are the mechanical properties? I don't expect you guys to know all the engineering principles, but the simple things. What are the motors and where are they? Right, so the motors are at the hip and at the knee. So if you put this device on someone, it's not really going to do anything to move the upper extremity arms because the motors are at the hip and the knee. Um, where does it support? So that was a really good question. Where is it being attached to the limbs? 
Is it a place that's appropriate for your patient? So we had a traumatic brain a patient with a traumatic brain injury uh, from a gunshot wound, and he had a wound on his leg as well. So this was something that we wanted to implement. We thought it would be really good for his gait training. However, where one of the straps attached was where one of the wounds were in his leg. So it wasn't possible. So that's a barrier that has nothing to do with the different manufacturer's restrictions. That had to do with the individual patient. So as that healed, and that as we were able to affix something to the limb, then he was appropriate to use this technology. But these are considerations that can't be in a manual, right? Which is why this technology has to be implemented through a skilled clinician. Again, adjustability. So you guys hit on all of these things right away in the first three minutes. Adjustability, how big can it go? How tall can it go? How short can it go? And how wide can it go? And it's not necessarily, and how narrow can it go? So we've had those issues as well with some of our pediatric patients and our more slender um, individuals. We have issues with all of the different fit components. These are not unusual problems. Fit is an issue. So I have a nine-year-old daughter who just strained her ACL. She's wearing an extra small adult brace. It's mostly around her ankle all day long, falling down. So I understand the fit considerations. It's an issue. We need to get things that actually fit patients and we don't just put what we have and the sizes we have onto a patient, right? So fit is a huge issue and right now the fit considerations of a lot of these devices are limited. And in some ways those limitations are safety related because the, the breakage points of these devices are such that we don't want to put someone who has too much mass or too much height to break the system while they're in it. And so they're being very conservative to make sure that there's, the devices are safe. So those are the mechanical properties. Let's talk about the control properties. Software. So you can have a very well-designed exoskeleton, but you have to be able to control each leg. You have to be able to control potentially each leg independently. You need to make sure you can control the right leg and the left leg if, if you have a hemiplegia situation. What is the controller? Is it something small that you can put in your pocket? Is it an iPhone? How does it attach? Is it Bluetooth technology? What happens if you lose the signal? Okay, so I'd rather have something plugged in, maybe, maybe, but then you're tethered to the patient. So all of these are limitations or benefits depending on the different technology that you're gonna use. Treatment progression. Do you have the ability to add or remove assistance as needed as the patient progresses through their treatment program. So all of these are key elements in making sure that if you decide to use this technology, again, it's an extension of your therapy plan or your treatment plan. And pregate. So we're talking about movement of the limbs, sequencing through, swing phase, stance phase, but it's also important that they can do some squats, so they can do some stepping, so they can do some shifting side to side. Some of these devices have the ability to do that and some of them don't. And so if you need to do pregate, the consideration of whether or not that's a possibility. So this is one of the patients, maybe we're gonna show. Oh, let's go back, we skipped. Okay. There we go. So this is one of our patients, one of the first patients we put in the device. Post-stroke is an inpatient at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. He has a little destabilizing event. He has a dorsiflexion wrap. He's being helped with the physical therapist. This is the same session. This is during training. So currently, he's tethered and he's using a rolling walker because we were actually training the therapist. This is now two weeks later. The same patient is sequencing now with a cane. 
He's walking and talking. I think he's actually chewing gum. <laughs> and the idea of showing this is just to show a difference in a training environment. So one is a therapist-guided training environment, and one is a robotic training environment. And the goal is not to show you one is good or one is bad. The idea is to show you the difference of what you can offer in rehabilitation. And maybe at one stage or one day or for one session, having the patient walk under their own control has beneficial. And potentially for a dosing perspective, getting more sequence steps in a given amount of time, maybe the exoskeleton can be beneficial in the process. So this is a slightly different story. This patient is much more impaired and had a, this was the first time they walked during their inpatient stay. So you see Shannon is the therapist and she's using her knee to stop his knee from bending. She's a dorsiflexion wrap, she's using a bedside table and he's having a lot of difficulty sequencing through. What's interesting about this video is this was actually a week before he walked for the first time in therapy. So now we're talking about early mobilization, getting someone up and walking early in the rehabilitation process. And so this particular patient, this video of him walking is the first time he was able to successfully ambulate in what he considered independently. Obviously he's receiving a great deal of assistance to be able to successfully ambulate. And we had him as part of a clinical trial to use this device during his inpatient stay. And you see in the exoskeleton, he's able, someone's still behind him. He's not walking independently. Someone's behind him, helping to make sure he's stable and shifting weight and sequencing through. But you see he's upright. The device is keeping him upright. He's got his arms strapped. He's taking sequen sequential steps. And he happened to have been in the gate lab. So part of the reason he's wearing a lot of different devices is because we were doing some um, biomechanical testing. And again, the goal is not necessarily to say which is better. The goal is to show the options in rehab and potentially getting someone up and walking with an increased dosing. So those two devices were the ExoGT by ExoBionics. I'm going to go through a little bit more data from that device because it's the one we've had the longest and it's the one we've actually been able to implement on the unit both here and at Kessler West. So this is the Indigo device. This is made by Parker Hannafin. And what's unique about this, and you guys asked really good questions in the beginning. You're like, spoiler alerts. Each device is different, right? So this device is modular. It comes apart. So you see it breaks into all these tiny pieces. This device is, most of these devices are used for other populations. This was originally devised because it can be put on while someone is seated in a wheelchair. And so the idea is that someone could independently strap the pieces together while they were seated in a chair. And so that has, that's very interesting to people who are interested in being able to don and doff the device themselves. And you've probably heard buzz about moving these devices into the community. So if that was ever to be a thing, potentially you could carry this device in a duffel bag or in some sort of a bag and then modular, in a modular way, put it on yourself, either from a car or from a chair or from somewhere independently. That has, that, that's something people would be interested in using it in the community. However, we have to back up because we're talking about stroke rehabilitation. So we're talking it as you being used with a clinician in the rehabilitation process. So that's an interesting component that could be translated long term. But using it in the rehabilitation process for a patient, I'm not sure it, that may or may not have a benefit to you based on what you want to do with the patient. You also see it's a lower profile device. So it doesn't have necessarily that rigid upright, upright support. So I'm not necessarily comparing and contrasting these devices to show you which one is good and which one is bad. The idea is to show you, again, the different mechanical properties and potentially the software properties. 
So this device, again, it's modular. It doesn't have that rigid upright support. So if somebody has trunk control and doesn't necessarily need an exoskeleton to help them keep upright, maybe this is a potential device. However, the hip unit has, for us, had limitations in how wide it can go. So we have different sizes. We have small, medium, and large, but there are people who are more large than the large fits. So this, for us, has been a limitation. And this device fits patients up until 250 pounds, but what's been an issue for us has been that hip width. The other device only goes to 220 pounds, and actually the limitation we've had in that device has been height. We are not able to put really, really tall people in the device. Um, and, and that's been a limitation height-wise. We haven't had as many issues with, with width. So I just wanted to show you what this device looks like. And this is a gentleman uh, post-stroke. He had been discharged, so he had already done his inpatient stay. He had been in the inpatient um, environment at Kessler for 20 days. He was discharged. And he's walking pretty well independently by himself. Um, no assistive device. And now we asked him to walk a little bit faster. And you see the way he's walking. And he's independent. This is the same person in the, in the indigo device. So immediately, what do you notice? He's slower. He's using a cane now. So this is part of the problem with exoskeletons. Because if you stop the story there, most people will say, well, then I don't want him to use this. However, if you looked at the video, the gait mechanics of walking without the device versus the gait in this device were very different. And if you're trying to, to drive in-plane movements, repetitive practice of those in-plane movements, slow him down and get his motor program a little bit more healthy, maybe this is a device for use in the outpatient setting to help drive an in-plane movement, more knee flexion, and try to prevent some of those pathological compensations. And that's a key element to these devices because, again, the goal is not to say good versus bad. It's how can I use this to drive recovery? And in stroke, this is really unique because we're not trying to substitute or compensate for lack of movement. We're trying to drive recovery. So the idea is increase dosing, increase steps in the right plane of movement to drive that recovery process. And so, yes, he's faster. He's, no one's touching him. He doesn't have anything on him, and he doesn't have an assistive device. But that's why this video is really interesting, because when you slow him down, and I'm sure you've all had that patient who was running around the gym, and you're like, slow down, quality, not quantity. You know, do it with good quality, not with speed. You want them to do the movement in a healthy way so that they retrain that movement in a healthy way so they can recover. Okay, so now we're gonna move into something totally different but they're still considered soft suits or exoskeletons. So this device is made by Rewalk. So most of you know about the Rewalk exoskeleton, which is very similar to that robotic exoskeleton we first looked at with upright support, has backpack straps, it goes down to the knee, motors at the hip, motors at the knee. This is a very different device because this is going to help with plantar flexion and dorsiflexion. And so you can kind of think of it as an active AFO, or you can think of it as a walk-aid device with motors. It's providing dorsiflexion and plantar flexion. So the idea of this device is that it wants to help you provide a little propulsion at terminal, uh, terminal stance, and it wants to help you get a heel strike at when the foot hits the ground. 
And so the idea of this is it's still really in concept. It's being commercially um, marketed. And the reason I say it's in concept is because we're testing it. If we're testing it, it means we're helping the company get information about it. And oftentimes, they'll make even further enhancements or improvements. And so we're applying this right now in the chronic phase to be used to see if we can drive dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, active dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, and not fix the foot through compensation, potentially get that paddle mechanism moving. And so we've started using this device. And when you look at it, now this is another lesson. You look at this and you're like, well, there's these wires coming out and there's these clips down here and it goes on the calf and it looks like a little more involved and more adjustable. And so again, just because it doesn't necessarily look like the other devices or look as you expect it to, to look, doesn't mean it may not be amazing for your patient. So when our clinicians first were trained on this, they were looking at it and they were like, there's a lot of cables and it goes around the back and, and this is, you have to clip this and there's a lot of pieces. I've now been told that this is one of their favorite devices because it provides something they didn't have a device that could provide. So dorsiflexion and active, active dorsiflexion and plantar flexion was something a lot of our clinicians were looking for. And to have a device like this, especially in the chronic phase, to help drive that, they were very interested in this. And what's nice about this is they can be put on a treadmill, you can walk over ground. So there's some options involved in this that may be difficult for a larger exoskeleton. And again, not to say one is good or bad, but the options that are presented as you remove material or as you add material to change support and change the control properties. Again, this is now, uh, the device that I just showed you, Indigo, was off of an iPad. This device is also off of a, a mobile device, so it's not tethered, so you can make changes on the fly for both of those devices. So I'll show you what it looks like. This is a clinician walking in the device. So this was during, let's make sure this plays. So this isn't a participant post-stroke, so the other two were. This is actually one of our therapists maybe walking. There we go. And she's gonna walk back and forth, and you're gonna see that it's a calf wrap, so it goes very tight around the calf. And it's tightened kind of like a snowboard boot. It has like that twist tighten. Maybe it'll play again. It's very mad at me. Well, it lifts and lowers the foot, and it's based on these actuators, right? So you can kind of see what the first time it walked, it kind of lifted the toes and it, it, it pulled the toes down. And the idea is very similar to the natural mechanics of the human body, we've got these pulleys that are gonna go back and forth. And it's very similar to the way the muscles work. So what we're basically using is an exoskeleton on the outside to provide assistance where there's weakness or inability to move. Sorry, that didn't play. So, this is the last device I'm going to introduce, and this is called the Kyogo device. Um, again, it's modular, so you see the suitcase, all the pieces go into a suitcase. And this one they're calling a dermoskeleton. And what's interesting about this is the idea that eventually we could translate into having a device like this be worn underneath the clothing in the community, or to have it be closer to the skin and less as an exoskeleton on the outside, and more fabric-based than rigid structure based. So again, you guys asked great questions in the beginning. The idea if it's fabric based is that maybe it's softer, it's more durable, or uh, you can do more things with it, right? Rather than being limited in your movements. So I think you're gonna like this video. So this is a therapist. All three of these are therapists during training. This is a therapist walking down the hallway. This is the first time she walked in it, so she's walking a little 
interesting. She's getting used to it. But you notice she just turned on her own. So that's one key thing. She just made her own turn. Whereas some of these devices, they cannot turn on their own because they can't do any lateral stepping. So she just turned on her own. Now you see this is another therapist. She's doing squats. This is a motor only at the knee. And now this is a therapist who is going to challenge it and go for a little jog. And they're running a little interesting because they're wearing a device, right? So they're getting used to it. Um, and now he's going to run back. So these are therapists who are challenging. I actually had one of someone jumping, but I just didn't think that that was a good idea to show. So what's interesting about these exoskeletons, we showed one with a motor at the hip and the knee, one only working at the ankle. This one is only working at the level of the knee. They're going to add and remove control. So if you want more control of the trunk, if you want more control of the hips, and you want a more rigid device, there are options. If you want to remove that control and only work at the level of the ankle, that might be where the dysfunction is, and that's where you want to apply a device, we have that option. This is an interesting device because a lot of you may have seen in the news about our warfighters having enhancements. So there's another area of exoskeletons in ergonomics for repetitive strain injuries in factories and in, in repetitive jobs, and for some of our military population who are looking for enhancements for endurance and for other reasons. So this is a device that has a hybrid system that can also be used in a very different application. It looks very differently, but it's being, it's being used in some military applications and tested. And you can see that if you can run in it and you can move in it, it may be able to help with, with endurance. The idea, though, for us in rehabilitation, in stroke, is always to go back to that key issue. Stroke rehabilitation, recovery, gait retraining, and doing it within the context of a clinician. But it's nice now that we have, an op we have options. I was actually going through a presentation that I gave at this exact conference five years ago, and we only had the XOGT. So now we have all of these different options that can actually be used, and we're doing clinical trials to gain the evidence to see how they can help with patients, specifically in stroke rehabilitation. And I th think that's important because a lot of times we take this technology and we put it in all different populations. Does it help with walking? I think it's really important. Is it in the chronic phase? Is it, do they have hemiplegia? Are you trying to drive recovery? Do they have any motion? Are they in the chronic phase? What is the goal? Are you removing pathological compensations? So where you apply it is going to tell you whether or not it's going to be effective for your patient. We've moved past some of the feasibility and safety aspects of this, but those can't ever be denied. Can it be applied and is it safe? And those are always things that we have to consider. So I'm going to go through some initial data for the XOGT. So this was a little photo shoot we had. All of the engineers were super excited that we had so many robots in the lab at one time. So we took a picture. Um, we have quite a few robots. So we have two robots that we use in spinal cord injury. Um, they're used mostly in outpatient at Kessler Foundation. We have two robots on the unit at Kessler West. So we have one on the third floor for brain injury and one on the first floor for brain injury. We have one on the unit here for brain injury. And we have one device at Children's. And there's more devices there. I think we had a few that were on loan. So that's why we took a picture. But we're using these devices for different reasons. And that's why we have different devices on the units for different, for different therapists to use. We also train the therapists to use these devices. If they're going to treat stroke rehabilitation and stroke gait retraining, we train brain injury therapists. We typically take spinal cord injury therapists, and we train them to use it for spinal cord injury patients. So again, you can't just take this technology and see if it sticks. You have to use it the way you would anything else in rehab. What is the population? What are your rehabilitation goals? All of these things really need to be considered. 
And I actually applaud the industry and the people using this because they're taking a very careful approach with this technology. And we're really trying to see how it can be applied and whether or not it's going to, to make a difference and not just forcing it into everybody's hands. And I think that's a, been a great approach, but it also means that the evidence-based literature is slow coming. So I'm working on that, I'm sorry. All right, so let's talk a little bit about dosing. So now we're talking about the XOGT. We took 63 patients, inpatients in the rehabilitation um, setting, inpatients at Kessler West. We had 63 patients who consented to use the exoskeleton during their inpatient stay. During their initial physical therapy evaluation, they walked about eight feet. On average, some people didn't walk at all, right? So some of them were zeros. Um, but on average of those 63 patients, they walked eight feet, again, with moderate to max assist, a quad cane or a walker, and usually a dorsiflexion wrap. Um, in their first exposure to the robotic exoskeleton, they walked 439 feet or 426 steps. So what we're talking about is just dosing, right? So if you just talk about the uh, amount of steps they're taking, the dosing that you can get in an exoskeleton seems to be higher than that of with uh, the environment of walking just with a clinician. However, we want to compare apples to apples. So if we actually look, those are not always on the same day. So if you take the same day in therapy that they walked with a, with a clinician and the same day they used the XOGT, they still walked 163 feet in therapy and 439 with the robot. And so if what you're trying to do is get repetitive movements, repetitive sequencing of the limbs and dosing, it seems that there's preliminary evidence that you get more steps with this type of device. Again, still talking about dosing, we now took 25 people and we gave them a much more concentrated amount of dosing. We made sure they had three days a week of this device while they were in the inpatient setting. And again, they're not here that long. So when you say three days a week, sometimes that's three sessions, right? They're not here in the inpatient process, in the inpatient setting and rehab that long. So what we did is we took 25 people who had at least three visits with the exoskeleton. They were average age, um, height and weight for patients we usually have. They had had uh, 31 plus or minus eight days as a length of stay, and they were uh, nine plus or minus 11 days post-stroke. And they had had about 21 days of physical therapy, and on average about four days in the robotic exoskeleton. So if you look at the average distance walked per session, again, we're talking about almost 20 days, 20 sessions of PT, and about four sessions of walking with the robot. Walking in physical therapy, standard of care, on average they walked about 226 feet per session, and with the exoskeleton they walked 581 feet per session. So again, we're talking about dosing. And dosing, if that is the critical element of the, during rehabilitation that you want them to get more steps, then it seems like with the exoskeleton they're walking more steps, or the, in this case feet distance. And we look at the discharge distance, again, in standard of care, they increased from those 226 to 315 steps at that discharge session. And we also increased in the exoskeleton that they're now walking 714 steps. So again, that increasing the amount you're walking in distance can actually mean speed. Or if you're walking on step length, maybe you don't want as many steps. But in general, they increase their steps in their distance in both environments. What's interesting, if you look at the total distance walked during the entire rehabilitation stay, so dividing by the amount of visits they had, they walked further in physical therapy, in the standard of care environment with the physical therapist than with, than with the EXO. However, they had 21 visits to walk 3,800 steps versus three plus or minus two visits in the exoskeleton to walk 
2,000 steps. So if you can add this, how can you change the dosing through that very short length of stay that isn't going to get longer? So when you talk about the length of stay and you talk about dosing, could we make a difference in the recovery if we can get this much step dosing by adding this technology? So we also looked at those 25 people and we wanted to look over an average of those sessions, um, how they compared to a matched group. And so we, what we're looking at is, is over time we wanted to match those participants. And what we saw was that the exoskeleton didn't do any harm, which is critical. And the other thing we saw is that on average, they both increase the amount of steps that they're taking throughout the inpatient stay. So when you look at standard of care versus the robotic exoskeleton, they're both increasing throughout the inpatient stay. And I think this is a critical piece of information because you don't want to do any harm. And we expect progression during their inpatient stay. And so again, we're comparing these two different environments from a dosing perspective. We're not saying one is good, one is bad. But what we want to do is make sure that they're both showing progression. So one of the ways that we can look at that is through the FIM. And we want to make sure that regardless of the environment that they're walking in, as a standard measurement, we want to make sure that their FIM scores are increasing. So if we add this technology, we saw that their FIM scores increased at discharge. And when they didn't have this technology, we saw their FIM scores generally increase, their motor scores increase at discharge. And again, we have to be fair as scientists and clinicians to look at this to make sure that we're not doing any harm and that we're still seeing improvements. Because we expect improvements while they're here for rehabilitation. What we want to do is see if we can drive that recovery to have even more or even better improvements. So I have a few minutes to show you a little bit on what we do in the gate lab. So what we do is we bring someone in, we have them wear the exoskeleton, we put markers all over them. What I like to say is we decorate them like a Christmas tree and I get so much data, it's amazing. So I can tell you about their rotations, their joints, flexion and extension. I can tell you about their muscle firing, I can tell you about their loading and we can bring them into the gate lab. So they're inpatients in the hospital, they agree to be part of the study, they come to the gate lab, we put them all together and we have them walk with and without the device. So if you look at this, you can see on the bottom we're just showing the TA, so we're showing sequencing of the TA. So tibialis anterior is lifting the foot, right, during gait, and we're actually seeing some good sequencing both on the hemiparetic side as well as the healthier side. But if you look at the stick figure that's walking, do you think they're walking with or without the exoskeleton? So they're walking with, and it says that at the top. So you could have cheated. And what's interesting is you don't see the cane, but they're sequencing with a the cane. They have one arm supported. And you see them shifting, right? So what's nice when you strip away the skin and you skip, uh, strip away the device, you can actually see the mechanics of the human body. And you see the shoulders shifting weight, which is what we should do when we're walking. You can see knee flexion. So you see the red leg and you see the green leg. And you see knee flexion. What's nice in this plane of looking at it, especially from the front, you see the shoulders. You can see the shoulders not rise, right? So usually when you get a hip hike, you're going to see a shoulder rise. So these are just the mechanics, and it's nice to look at it because you can actually see how the mechanics of the body are changing just looking at it from this perspective. We obviously quantify this in many different ways, and we create all these kinematic graphs, and, and we're really looking deeply at how this affects movement. But what's nice to see is doing visual observation, just gait analysis, you can see really good information just looking at this. So now we go to the next one. And this is without the device. And immediately you see that red limb does like a little twist and slide before it goes. So now it's moving out of plane. 
and you're seeing like a twist because in order to swing that leg through, in order to actually be able to lift the leg, there's weakness. So they're having a difficult time lifting their own leg, driving that knee flexion and taking that step. So you're seeing a pathological compensation. The other thing you're not really seeing is you're not really seeing that weight shift left to right. So you're not seeing a, a healthy weight shift. Again, in this particular um, environment, the arm is not supported. That can easily be done with, with a sling, but in this case it wasn't. And you can see that shoulder kind of lift as they sort of hike or vault over that limb that they're having trouble swinging through. So what we looked at, we looked at the muscle firing. And again, it's really important that they're not just going for a ride. So one of the first things we wanted to do was look at lower extremity muscle firing. So we looked at the TA, soleus, gastroc, rectus femoris, fastus lateralis, and biceps femoris. And we wanted to look at the lower extremity musculature and just make sure with the therapist their muscles were firing, then without the therapist and the device, we wanted to make sure they had firing. If their muscles were firing during walking and sequencing, we wanted to see that they were continuing to fire. We think this is really important in recovery. So if we're gonna talk about dosing, we need to make sure that the dosing involves active participation and active muscle contraction. So we just published this in Frontiers, so we're getting some preliminary evidence. But what's nice about this is that we're showing active contraction in both environments. But there were two critical components of this that were really interesting. The first is, and this is from an engineering perspective, when you look at the muscle signal and you analyze it, higher, right, higher amplitudes or a higher signal, usually people think that's good, there's more firing. However, as a clinician, you know if that firing is not happening at the right time and it's firing this high, I'm, I'm being the graph, right, and it's supposed to be quiet, that's a bad thing. So what we found was, if you look at the gray, that's walking with the clinician, and the vastus lateralis and a few other muscles, but this one was the most pronounced, is firing throughout the entire stance phase and pre-swing when it's supposed to be quiet. Whereas with the exoskeleton, it tended to be quiet at the right phase. So what are we saying? Is it possible, now in this initial group, we started to see that A, there's active participation, and B, maybe we're getting more steps and potentially sequencing the muscles in a healthier pattern with the help of the exoskeleton. However, the exoskeleton is doing some of the work. So now we have to go back to the control properties of the device. Do we want to make it a little harder for them? Can we add some resistance, take away assistance, so that they continue to work their muscles? So these are the things that are important when you consider these devices. The reason we have implemented the XOGT currently is because we can remove the assistance, add assistance, and make asymmetrical assistance. And before your minds are blown by this conversation of all this technology, we have had 23 clinicians who are not engineers who are using this every day with patients and have mastered the technology in a very limited amount of time. And actually my lead therapist just went to go work for the company. <laughs> <laughs> which is okay because that's great because he's informed he's knowledgeable he understands the population and now he can help to drive the technology forward with the patient and clinician in mind which is amazing okay so my last piece of information is just going to that symmetry so we look at these graphs here and there's a lot of colors the only thing that's important is see here in this one with the robotic exoskeleton the green ends at the same time where the green is ending is the end of stance phase the yellow is swing 
So with the exoskeleton, left and right, affected and unaffected, or affected and less affected, we're getting a symmetrical stance phase or symmetrical stepping. Here's without the device, walking with a therapist, you see an asymmetrical stance phase, which you would expect in hemiplegia. However, and I've already talked to the company about this and we're looking into this, the stance phase is well beyond that 60%, which is what we expect or what we want in healthy individuals. It's up near sometimes 75, 80% of the stance phase of, of the gait cycle. So they have a prolonged stance phase. However, this device is an extension of the clinician. So are we slowing down the stance phase to cue the patient? Is the device not allowing that stance phase to be shorter? Because we're in a learning environment. So right now what we're exploring is how can we change the settings to, as this patient-driven, clinician-driven, or device-driven? And we don't know yet. Symmetry is good, but what we want again, going to quality, is we would like that to be more of a 60-40 split during the gait cycle. So we have a lot of people to thank to do this work, a ton of physical therapists, attendings who are willing to let their patients volunteer to be part of the study and be part of this. It's a huge part of it, having the attendings who are interested in having this technology to help drive recovery for their patients. Clinic, uh, physical therapists who are interested in finding a way to implement it and using it within the really vast skills that they have in their head to apply and having this be an extension of themselves, as well as the engineers who help us uh, analyze a great deal of data. Um, and we've been doing this now for five years and we've had over 200 patients post brain injury in this device and about 180 patients post stroke, most of them in the acute setting in this device. And so what we've been able to do is really apply this right into the clinic and not just have it in the laboratory. So we're doing testing in the laboratory, but what we're able to do is translate this right into the clinic to have a good understanding of how it can be used. For more information about Kessler Foundation and our researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.